Hello, friends. I'm JP. And I'm Drew, and you're listening to the Broken But Beautiful podcast, where we talk about why church is still worth it. JP, I'm really excited about our episode today. Uh, You and I just got finished listening through your interview with Lindsey Krinks, and I think that there's a lot of things for a lot of people in this episode. I think it's going to be great. I'm really excited about this conversation. She's someone that has really impacted the way I think over the last decade, really expanded my thinking and my knowledge of a lot of issues. It's Lindsey Krinks. She's with Open Table Nashville, which is an homeless advocacy and outreach group. She has just released a book over the last couple of months entitled Praying With Our Feet, Pursuing Justice and Healing on the Streets. Friendship with her has impacted me. Her book has definitely impacted me. We wanted to do maybe a little longer introduction to this episode because when we get into it with Lindsay, we kind of hit the ground running. So let's frame it this way. Drew, I know we have a bunch of different listeners to the podcast and some feedback we've gotten, both on the podcast and just people we talk to about church, is one people's frustration with church is that it doesn't do more for the poor. And that oftentimes the church seems to be kind of a self-perpetuating group with lock-ins and cookouts and trips to Six Flags in the summer and occasionally a service project. But it doesn't seem to be a group of people that's as concerned with the poor as Jesus was. Yeah, and that way it feels a lot like a social club or a place that you have to meet certain requirements or have certain qualities about you in order to be a part of that group. And I don't know that's what the kingdom of God is designed to be like. I think that God calls us to be in community with one another. And one of the major critiques of the church as an institution is that it is not as open to broader community as it could be. One of the things we discussed in the interview is Christians are oftentimes concerned with personal morality. And then sometimes we wonder about social morality, obviously our definitions of those things differ from person to person. We often talk about we need to get more involved in the community, but that's complicated because it often gets political and some people are okay getting political about certain topics, but not about others. (laughs) And there's always a concern specifically in in my tradition that if we start getting political, we're going to take our eye off the ball. But here's the question I get a lot. If there are a thousand churches in the city of Nashville of all stripes, and there's roughly a thousand nonprofits, why do we still have so many people on the streets? Yeah, that's a a tough question. I think churches might prefer just to work within their wheelhouses. In other words, to work with the problems of the people that are part of their community, because these people have suffered with these or struggled with these Mm -hmm. problems on their own. And so they have solutions for them. They have different ways to help people get out of certain situations. But a lot of what we talk about with Lindsay, it's messy and it's things that some of us have never had to deal with before. And so sometimes we just don't know where to start. And if we don't know where to start, we just don't, we just say that's someone else's issue to deal with. And she says it towards the end of the episode, just we need to be curious and we need to ask questions. So she very much looks at homelessness through a systemic lens. I've talked to her enough to know she also looks at it through an individual lens. I've talked to her before about 
some people we've worked with were more motivated than others. Some people had different individual histories. And I agree with her on this. She refuses to only look at it through an individual lens. So she right. brings up a lot of systemic issues that are sometimes hard for me to think about because it's not the normal things I think about. Affordable housing, just wages, a punitive criminal justice system that sometimes makes it hard for people to get back on their feet. And to see these aspects as reasons for homelessness. I've been spending a lot more time thinking about the unhoused population over the last 10 years as I've been at my current congregation because of our location. When it's not COVID and things are kind of fully open in the community, we have people that are unhoused come in every week. And sometimes they just want a bus ticket or something to eat. Sometimes they just want a temperature controlled place to just kind of sit down for a few minutes, get a cup of coffee. Sometimes we refer them to what I would see as kind of more mainstream homelessness resources in the city of Nashville. It'd be the Nashville Rescue Mission, Room in the Inn. And sometimes that works. Sometimes, though, there are people that, for whatever reasons, they fall through the cracks of those groups. We have spent years walking, doing life with people that camped in the woods. Currently, we've had a a gentleman camping on our church property since December of 2019. And I tell you, I haven't always handled these things well. I haven't always known what to do, but I'll tell you, my first call is almost always Lindsay. And she's always helpful in helping me understand what's going on. And the the best way to help somebody without taking over, because Drew, (laughs) I try to take over a lot and I don't know what I don't know. And there've been so many times I've made the problem worse (laughs) because I try to take over. And she's been good at saying, don't take over, just think big picture and walk alongside them. So I think there may be two types of people listening to this podcast. The first type of person might be saying the church does not do enough for this community. The church is not involved in social Mm. justice enough. We hope that you'll hear this episode and know that the church is involved with these things, but it has not always done it the best. The other person who's listening to this episode might be saying, why would the church even want to get involved Mm. with that? And to that, JP and I just hope that you would maybe listen and seek to understand something more or to learn something different. So those of you that are listening, we hope that you enjoyed this interview with Lindsey Krinks. Lindsey, it's so good to see you. So good to be with you today. Well, let's start off, if you don't mind, just tell us a little bit about your spiritual background, kind of your church upbringing. What has all this meant to you throughout your life? So I grew up in a really small and pretty conservative um, church in the foothills of South Carolina, in Spartanburg, South Carolina. My whole family, my grandparents, my cousins and aunts and uncles, we all went to church together. And it was something we did every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, and every Wednesday night. And for me, growing up in the church, um, it was our community, but it also was something that I fell in love with. I remember I had a lot of friends in middle school and high school who were not interested in church, but I was sitting on the front row you know, of the pews. Um, I was scribbling sermon notes in my journal, you know, taking notes about the sermons and always wanting to discuss theology with our pastor. And I just, I loved church. I loved church so much that I wanted to um, stay 
with kind of that spirit. And that's one of the reasons why I came to Nashville to go to Lipscomb. So for me, um, when I was raised in that atmosphere, my spirituality, my upbringing really taught me that, that my spirituality was a very personal matter. Um, and I'm really thankful for that background. It wasn't until later that I realized my spirituality, my faith also had political and social and economic implications, but you know, there's a lot of really wonderful things that I'm thankful for about my upbringing. Um, the church that I was a part of taught me how to love other people, you know, um, it also taught me how to exclude people. So there's, it's a mixed bag there, but I'm thankful for that tradition um, and that background because it's um, really allowed my faith to be um, where it is today now. And I like how you said it gave you the foundation of, Hey, my faith is personal and that's, an important foundation, but it doesn't stop there. And as we move to kind of the idea of admitting, confessing, acknowledging the brokenness of church, I wanted to reference a quote from your recent book where you're talking about the disconnect sometimes between our, our personal faith and our public faith. And, and you're talking about the ministry to those experiencing homelessness and economic issues. And this is page 68 of your book. You said, Despite the inspiring examples of ministers like Charlie, that's a reference to Charlie Strobel, Room in the Inn, for those in Nashville that might know. But despite those inspiring examples, we had seen city officials, nonprofits, and so many faith communities fail our friends on the streets. We were disenchanted by organized religion and felt that so many churches applauded charity, but failed to work toward justice. In these churches, it seemed... And this is the sentence that really got me, Lindsay. It said, in these churches, it seemed that faith was relegated to the private sphere of personal morality, and the focus was on advancing their own institutions instead of embodying the gospel and its good news to the poor. Do you want to elaborate that? Just tell, tell us what led to that statement. You know, that came after um, about a year and a half almost two years working on the streets and seeing how many people were falling through the cracks of our system. But what I started seeing is that our friends didn't just need service. They needed solidarity. They did not just need someone to give them a sandwich or a tent. They needed affordable housing. They needed living wages. They needed healthcare. And, you know, too many times our churches become kind of social clubs where we are we're too comfortable together. We, we perpetuate the status quo and our theology is a theology of the, you know, of the status quo, not of the oppressed. You know, our God is not a God of the oppressed, a God of the crushed. It's a God of the status quo. <laughs> and that really made me feel disenchanted. Now, of course I love church and I think there's a lot of hope and possibility there, but seeing the church fail me and seeing the church fail so many of my friends, um, both on the streets, but also in other parts of the community, right? My friends who um, struggle and suffer from racism and racial injustice, it was really difficult to, I don't know, to grapple with that. So yeah, what, what is a, if the gospel, I think it's been said, you know, the gospel, um, 
it, the purpose of the gospel is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. You know, we've heard that said before, I forget who said it, but you know, where are we in that? Um, where are we uncomfortable and, and how can we be um, using our church, not just to perpetuate the status quo, but to actually be and live out the kingdom of God in the here and now, and not just the kingdom of God, not use the kingdom of God um, as a more, a less hierarchical <laughs> right term for that, a more communal term. Let me ask you this question as a follow-up to that, because I think the churches that you say had let down your friends on the streets, my guess is now, believe me, I think we're all sinners, but my guess is they were very well-intentioned. Of course. Everyone's well-intentioned. Yes. <laughs> how, how is it that well-intentioned church people, and I'm one of those, can get so into, as you say here, personal morality and become suspicious of public morality, or as we say, politics, like where, do, where does that come from? You think? I think it comes for me. I can only speak from my experience growing up. I was kind of taught that church happened in a vacuum. And I think when we aren't taught how to analyze society and how to understand politics with a theological lens, right? Or these social issues with a theological lens, then we don't know what to do. And it feels really uncomfortable. And we forget to listen to the people that are directly affected and have them help us understand the realities from their perspectives. Right. We, we are like, Oh, well, we know, you know, we don't, we're not scared of the police. So no one else should be either. Right. Like we don't have to, we work hard for our housing. If people just worked harder, they should be able to get housing too. Not true. You know, in our society, you can work minimum wage job um, and you'd have to work over 120 hours a week to, afford fair market rent in Nashville. It's just not possible. So we forget to listen. And then our churches don't do the work of equipping folks, right? To grapple with our own contexts, just like we also, also forget to grapple with the context of scripture, the social, political, and economic realities that were going on and churning around Jesus's time that made him a threat to empire um, that led up to his crucifixion. That's yeah. just one hunch, but it is, it's a hard thing to talk about. I'm not going to, say that it's easy because it's not, but it is a tricky thing. You know what you just mentioned there. I, I put out a book in the last year, like you. And as I was writing it, I was trying to figure out how much scripture to put in because some people, their eyes start to roll over if you get too much scripture or some people have a type of background that it's off-putting. There was a lot of scripture in your book. Like there was a lot of scripture in your book. And it was, it was very prophetic in nature. So I'd like to connect the heavy emphasis on the old Testament prophets in your book with kind of just what you, what we're talking about. Well-intentioned <laughs> church people that sometimes miss some of these issues right before us. W what is the message of the prophets and how does it relate to that? You know, when I reread the prophets after having a better understanding of poverty around me and around the world, and I reread the prophets, it changed everything for me. Growing up, I didn't need the prophets. My church didn't need the prophets. We had food on the table. We had housing. Like we were comfortable. The prophets should change everything. Jesus and the gospel should change everything for us. The prophets are calling us to, to see the oppressed, to take the side of the oppressed. The prophets did 
radical and ridiculous acts. <laughs> they look like holy fools in their day. And, you know, it's almost like they performed the street theater to show people in that day were so concerned about religious ritual and doing the right sacrifices and, you know, treating themselves poorly on the days they were fasting. So everybody knew it. And then people like Isaiah come along and he's, he's like, Hey, God is saying, God doesn't care about how bad you look when you're fasting and how much of a show you make of it. God cares how you treat your neighbor. God wants you to loose the chains of injustice and let that be your fast. So I think the prophets are calling us to get our hands dirty and the struggle for a better world and to be a people, not just a person, but to be communities, a people that can hold this prophetic light in the midst of our world, in the midst of a suffering and injustice of our world and say, there is another world that is coming, um, that is better where there is less suffering. And that's going to start today with the way that we take care of each other and the people in our midst and the way we treat our neighbor. You talk a lot about this theme of, of justice and how, I know I keep going back this word, but well-intentioned church mm -hmm. folks and city leaders and all these perpetuate injustice, sometimes realizing it, maybe sometimes not realizing it, but the injustice continues. And, and there are times in your book, you compare and contrast justice and charity. Now, as someone, I participate in a lot of charity in my life, and I'm old enough now to have some regret over some of the charity that I participated in, but why does charity not work and how is justice different? You know, I've heard it described as charity is crumbs from the table. Justice is a place at the table with our charity. And, you know, a lot of nonprofits, I'm in the nonprofit um, community and a lot of nonprofits forget to how toxic charity can be with charity. We're always in these fixed roles, right? Of giver and receiver. And we can feel really good and have our guilt appeased when we're doing charity work. The problem is that there's, well, there's a lot of problems, but the, the big problem is that charity always perpetuates the need for itself, right? It always keeps people dependent on that. Um, it keeps the status quo in place. Justice overturns the tables. Justice welcomes people to the table, making sure people have a place and agency and dignity and equity. Justice, when we do our work with Open Table Nashville, for instance, we're still giving out sleeping bags and tarps and we're still um, giving out food when people need it. But we do it in this broader framework of justice where we're always advocating for more affordable housing. We're always advocating to um, repair the root causes of homelessness in people's lives and to break the cycles. So eventually we work ourselves out of a job. I mean, charity can be incredibly toxic, not only because it perpetuates the need for itself, but also because it locks us into these kind of savior complexes and benevolent liberator roles. When really, you know, we can truly find that our liberation is bound up with each other if we are also open to receiving and open to struggling alongside people um, in their fight for wholeness and justice as well. I am so thankful for the reminder that spirituality our walk with God is not just a personal matter or our walk with God only has social or economic implications. 
it's both and. Lindsay reminds me that as we walk with God, we are walking with God, but it's not just me as an individual walking with God. It's me and my neighbor walking with God together. I think it's a both and not an either or situation. I'm very thankful for that reminder. I'm encouraged by it as well. And I'm also reminded that this is going to be complicated and that not all Christians are going to agree on how this plays out. So we should all agree (laughs) with what Jesus says about his passion for the least of these. Matthew 25, right? My grandfather used to quote this to me. Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Mm -hmm. It's such an important passage. We must be concerned about the have-nots, but give each other space to maybe process it in different ways. So as I said in the conversation with her, I participate in a lot of charity. We're not saying that charity should all stop tomorrow. But what we are saying is that just as someone can get lost in the shuffle of a bunch of government programming, someone can also get lost in the shuffle of a lot of faith-based programming, even if it's charitable and well-intentioned. And we need to ask deeper questions. And is this a long-term solution? I have participated in my ministry as youth minister and now as preacher in a lot of service projects. Those are good things. Those are not going to bring total healing to this situation. It's It's got to go deeper. And we just have to give each other space. It's going to be complicated at times, but we're all on the same team. And we must all be committed to walking alongside the poor. The insight of justice versus charity is a helpful one for me where she says that justice offers a person a place at the table instead of charity which just offers crumbs from the table it kind of turns us away from a giver versus receiver mindset i have this thing to give and they have this need to receive but instead when we're involved in the work of justice we're saying hey come to the table sit with me we'll work through this together and that provides dignity and equity to the other person which i think we need to see in social justice work in the world, but we need to see that within our own churches as well. We need to look at other people and say, you might do this differently than I do, but you have a place at the table. And I think maybe there's no better place to learn it than working with people in our community that are not a part of our churches or a part of any faith. I think as churches, we need to get more comfortable with partnerships in the community. Yeah. And to say, hey, we want to partner with you on what you're doing for the homelessness. We may not agree on every single thing. Yeah. But can we partner on this? Because, example, my my particular church here, we can't move the needle on this alone. We have to partner with other people in the community, not just other churches. We have to partner with other groups. Yeah. At one point, Lindsay said that churches, and not just churches, but we as individuals, we've been taught to analyze society. And then when we're just taught to just analyze society over and over and over again, we forget how to listen. Mm -hmm. And when we forget how to listen, some of these problems that the church should be engaging in, some of these situations that the church should be engaging in, they become impersonal. Mm -hmm. And when we become engaged in those things and we learn who people are, we learn what their situations are, I think that moves the needle more than we think it does. You know, you're saying that we as a church might not be able to move the whole needle, but the individual work that we do within ourselves to say, hey, I see this person as my neighbor. I love how Lindsay refers to a lot of the people that she works with as our friends yeah. or my friends. I think that in itself moves the needle far more than we give it credit to. Yeah, she doesn't refer to them as 
the homeless, our clients, it's our friends. And that makes a big difference. This idea of, of charity, preventing people from, um, from independence, from empowerment, from um, true agency. Boy, that, that seems like something everybody would get involved in, would be on board with, you know, both, I mean, I hate to use these terms, but both conservatives and liberals, you would think could get on board. I mean, that's one reason I liked your book. Cause I'm like, Oh, once we see these things, our agreements should outweigh our disagreements on, on mm-hmm. coming together. So I'll phrase it like this. We both live in the city of Nashville. It's often said there's about a thousand churches, about a thousand nonprofits. If I could get all the leaders in one room, like if we could all get on the same page, I mean, I'm sure you think about this all the time. If we could all get on the same page, amazing things could happen. What would it take? First of all, how many people do you estimate are on the streets in Nashville now? And what would it take to move that a better direction? So there's, um, the estimates vary widely and I won't get into the technical aspects. We estimate that there's 20,000 people, if not more in the Nashville area that are in need of permanent housing. So some people are doubling up on couches, things like that. These are folks that are precariously housed. They don't have their own space. That's enough people to fill up Bridgestone Arena, right? If every seat was packed out, the people that are actually on the streets, it's probably closer to four to 6,000. But what we desperately need is affordable housing in the city. We don't have a living wage, a workable wage for people um, to actually make enough to afford the housing. And even still, a lot of our housing isn't accessible. We, we've got to demand that our community resources on the local, the state and the federal level start to be poured into these community resources again. Um, not jails, not prison, not over-policing. We need, we need health care, you know, health insurance. We need housing. We need wages that people can make it on. These are just a few of the things. And, and we need racial justice in the mix as well. Um, we know that folks that are brown and black have are disproportionately represented in the homeless community because of systemic racism in the, um, in the housing sector over the last century or more. But, but there's a lot, we, we know it works and we're, we're, we're working on those things with the city, but it's getting the political and civic will behind us. We need faith communities to mobilize and get behind those demands, working with groups like NOAA and others that have advocacy arms um, so that we can actually move the dial. And that's what we're trying to do. I've been smiling throughout the interview. And as I read your book, I, I smiled a lot. I also cried a lot. I mean, uh, <laughs> It challenges me. I got to be honest with you. I come from a tradition that is very concerned with advocacy because there's a fear that if we get too political, we'll stretch out and then we will tip over and fall over and we will lose the gospel. And I have mixed feelings because sometimes I feel like I've seen it happen and we have someone has lost the gospel, but then other times I'm like, maybe we're missing out on the real gospel. I just got to be honest about the conflict in my, my own heart and still working through some of these things. But tell me, because I sense in your writing and in your life that you're still hopeful about the church. So tell me, what have you experienced that's been beautiful about church? In your book, you talk about what we might think of as some non-traditional forms of church. But, but talk to us about how church has remained a part of your life. 
Absolutely. So I will say that, you know, I, I did lose my church home um, of many years and wrote about that um, story in the book. And it was a really painful experience. So I found church on the margins, you know, someone, I, Andrew and I, um, currently we do virtual church with a local group here, but, but my true church is on the streets. And I will always say that I'm, I'm a street chaplain. So I was literally ordained to the streets to serve, um, to serve my people there. But I find God so often in these abandoned and forgotten and contested places. Um, I see God moving among people that our society has discarded and condemned. I find church when people, uh, when I see people sharing what they have, so none go without, I see the, the church in Acts chapter two at Tent City, when people are literally taking in people among them who don't have health insurance and have broken arms and necks, and they have a hospital wing for them. That is, that's good news to the poor. They are showing radical hospitality that I have not even seen in many of our churches, right? I like Andrew and I have opened our home, but we haven't taken someone in, you know, that didn't have health insurance. Our friends are doing that there. I've seen the loaves and fishes multiplied under Jefferson Street Bridge. I have seen human beings who were all but dead resurrected. Like they were thrown into the living hells of prisons and institutions and encampments and slums. And God resurrected something in their spirit. Um, and with community, they are now alive and well and helping others. I have seen resurrection. And these are the kind of things that I wish others could see. And which is why I wrote the book, right? To take you there, not to tell you about it, but to take you to these sites of resurrection and also of crucifixion, right? Our, our people are killed too. We just lost another person who was shot by the police at his camp on Saturday. So we're still mourning the people we lose. I see hope in those places and I see church in those places, find communion in those places. But I also get to be a part of so many churches like Acklin and others that are really, truly grappling and wrestling with these things. It's not an easy thing. It's not a comfortable thing. These aren't comfortable questions to ask. No. Um, and I wanted to tell you about one church recently that um, was really wonderful. So, and, and I just thought this is what the church should be doing. You know, the flood came, we had another flood in Nashville recently um, last month and it hit the South side encampments that we work very closely with and have for a decade. It hit them head on. And we lost two members of that encampment. And in the aftermath of the flood, it was a the campsite that people were living in was a complete disaster. It was flooded out. People couldn't go home. They had the clothes on their backs. They lost their dogs. They lost two of their campmates. And the Red Cross shelter refused to open for folks. We said, where are people going to go tonight? They are like literally on the sidewalk, dripping wet. Where are they going to go? The Red Cross said, well, are they homeless? And we said, their, their home was washed away. It was a tent. She said, well, they, are they homeless? And we said, yeah. And she said, well, we don't do that. We don't do shelter for them. And we said, are you kidding me? So we kept pushing it with the city and saying, where are people going to go? And it was Jay Voorhees from um, City Road Chapel, United Methodist Church, who called me up and said, do people need a place to go? He said, our building's here. You're, it's all yours. Do whatever you need. You know, we've got a wedding this weekend, but they can stay as long as 
Um, you need them to, we'll figure it out. They bring them here and we'll figure it out. And, you know, y'all, people at the churches sometimes have day jobs and y'all are doing your thing, but the relationship you have with the people on the front lines, when you can't be on the front lines yourself is so huge and such a huge support. That was such a beautiful vision of church, uh, a way to minister to people and be with people to be present to people who were suffering profoundly and traumatized profoundly. And I'm just so thankful to get to, to be a part of stories like that and to get to be a part of, you know, your community over the years and to feel so much support and hospitality from y'all. I've seen y'all journey alongside people who found residence on your property or nearby. And that has been a beautiful sight to behold. So I'm deeply grateful for those visions. You know, we, we do see church failing. We do see church excluding. We do see church perpetuating the status quo and, and getting it wrong. But we also see so much light there. And light is not something that you can close out completely. It, it finds a way um, and it, it will continue to do that. And I'm grateful for those stories and for what it's meant in my life as well. You know, and as you say that a couple things, there were several stories in your book where people were sharing food together and you wrote it in such a way that it, it was dripping with communion language. And I saw it and I felt it and I could see Jesus in it. And it was so powerful. And also the stories you were just mentioning about walking with people and churches trying to do it. I can be real honest. We're walking with someone now who's trying to get off the streets I don't think I'm doing a great job. And our church has struggled. Like these things haven't been easy. And there are times I'm like, I feel like, I feel like we could have done more. Other times I'm like, oh, I tried to take over back to the agency thing. Like I took the agency <laughs> yeah. away from them, you know? And I guess I'd say it this way or ask it this way for, for someone out there that says I'm convicted that I need to be doing more about poverty, but I don't know what I don't know. Where would you encourage someone to start? You know, we always tell people to start where they are and to never try to do this alone. Never try to do this work alone. This, this work and grappling with issues of poverty and homelessness is something you do in communities. But I'd say start where you are. And, the, you know, so many of us just carry things in our car, make sure we have supplies at our church so we can practice hospitality along the way, just like the Good Samaritan did, being prepared, knowing that the road is treacherous. So he had the oil and wine and bandages for the wounds, right? How can we be more prepared and start where we are? But also, you know, we, um, if you're in Nashville or even if you're not, Open Table Nashville is a great resource for you. We have education, beginner homeless outreach trainings. Um, we'll do whatever we can to accompany, um, you and your faith community and the journey. Um, I mean, you know, we are supported by churches like Ackland, um, and we want to make sure you have support from us as well, whenever we can. So I'd say carry things with you, start where you are, learn names, know that, you know, you can't be, become a social worker overnight, probably <laughs> it might, uh, you might need to work with some other people on this. Just don't try to do it on your own. Um, find a community to hold that with, um, into journey. One thing that really impacted me is a few years ago, you took a group of adults and teenagers from our church and just took us through, I can't remember the word you used for it. Was it an, an excursion? An urban immersion. Urban yeah. immersion. <laughs> Where we basically 
we didn't walk to the tourist parts of town, but we, we walked the path that the unhoused would walk. And one thing that you and others have taught me is let's just be curious. There's a lot of questions we just never ask. I think some of this, at least for me, I've just tried to become more curious spiritual curiosity and just try to see where that took me. So. Absolutely. When we think we have it all figured out and know all the answers, we lose so much. Um, so we always tell people, instead of being judgmental, put on the lens of curiosity and um, and listen and, and seek to understand what we might not know um, and what it's like from other people's shoes. Lindsay's encouragement for us to start where we are. I know what moved the needle for me on this was to meet people who don't have a place to live, to know their name, to shake their hand, to give them a hug, to be a part of their life. For me, that was through the organization room in the end. That was people spending the night at our church in the winter months. Uh, I've done stuff with Nashville Rescue Mission. I've done stuff with Open Table that Lindsay's a part of. And I think for our churches or for us as individuals out there to start where we're at, start small. But when it, it ceases to be um, nameless people, but instead it's names. So one of the most powerful things that happened in our family was, this was several years ago, our family had been up at the church building one night, doing the room in the inn, sitting at the same table with some unhoused folks, having a meal. And then it was later that week that one of our daughters had a stomach bug and this can be a little gruesome, but she was in the bathroom. You know, my wife had her hair pulled back. She was getting sick and, uh, and she turns to my wife as she's sick and says, what happens when the homeless get sick? Who helps them? And what struck me was these were, it was now real to her. And these were people she thought about during the week. And I want her to always think about them Lindsay told the tragic story about the March 27th uh, heavy rains in Nashville and how sadly two people that didn't have housing died in that when their tent was swept away. Drew, that's about a mile and a half from my house. I didn't know they were back in there. But I, I think when we start to see that is these folks are our neighbors. And it's not a statistic, but it's a person. I don't have all the answers, but I think that's a good starting point. Yeah, I have friends who in Nashville, there's a newspaper called The Contributor mm -hmm. where people can purchase these papers and then go and sell them on the street to make money for themselves. And I have friends who know these contributor salespeople because mm -hmm. they have their typical locations, but they know them by name Yeah, and they know their stories. I know one person challenged me at one point to keep water bottles and granola bars in my car. Mm -hmm. And they said, whenever you see someone, pull over and hand it to them and ask them their name and offer to pray for them. And I think you're right. It, it needs to become personal for us. It needs to be not just this issue that we hope gets solved as a part of society, but it needs to become a deeply personal thing yeah. for us. I think every church and every Christian has to answer this question. What am I doing? What are we doing about poverty? And we may not have a solution, <laughs> but we have to at least have an answer because if we don't have an answer, we're not the movement Jesus started. Mm. Yeah, that's convicting. 
Well, we hope that as you've been listening to this, maybe you've been moved to consider how you can play a role in the poverty that you find surrounding your city or maybe even just maybe it's just outside your workplace maybe there's somebody that sits outside your office and you go maybe i need to learn that person's name or maybe it's the person that you drive by on your route to work and they sit at that corner of the intersection and maybe you just need to maybe your first move is just to offer them a prayer as you drive by i hope that we can listen to this episode and this interview with Lindsay, and our, our heart can grow enough to include the poor around us and those in poverty and that we can see them as our friends. 